0: Hello and welcome to the Battlefield Next Podcast. My name is Major J.J. Wellemeyer. On today's podcast, we have an interview with Mr. Fred Bork about the historical events that shaped the practice of operational law by judge advocates into the robust practice area we know it as today, national security law. Mr. Bork is a professor of legal history and leadership at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, where he also holds the title of regimental historian and archivist. The episode begins with Mr. Bork providing a historical backdrop about the role of lawyers in the Army from the earliest days of General George Washington's Continental Army. Our discussion also addresses the Vietnam War's infamous My Lai Massacre and how this event served as a catalyst for change in a judge advocate's role in operational settings. Before we get to the interview, please keep in mind that the views expressed by the participants are those of the participants alone and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's legal center and school. And now, here's the interview with Mr. Fred Bork.
1: So the role of lawyers in the Army, starting with the earliest days of the Republic, all the way really through Vietnam, is all about overseeing the delivery of military Uh, justice, all about courts-martial. From the very beginning, General Washington, when he took command of the Continental Army in 1775, he wanted a judge-advocate general because Washington believed that an effective army and an efficient army was a disciplined army, and a disciplined army meant courts-martial. So from the very beginning, the role of judge-advocates in the army and the other services for that matter, was all about overseeing courts martial. Some prosecution, but uh, a lot of line officers did the prosecutions early on. So if you look at Vietnam, for example, in 1969, the Army tried 59,000 courts martial. That's a lot. Last year, the Army tried fewer than 500, Courts martial. So there's a number of reasons why the rates have really gone down. Uh, But what's important and what we're talking about today is the metamorphosis of the JAG Corps and its transition away from lawyers doing courts martial to today's operational law. And I think it's the most significant event uh, to happen to the JAG Corps in the last. Quarter of a century, now a little bit more than that, even. And that's this development of operational law that's really changed the role of judge advocates in the Army.
0: In your opinion, is there a, a catalyst for, for that change?
1: Well, I think there is. A catalyst is the My Lai Massacre. So on March 16th, 1968, Second Lieutenant William Rusty Calley and his platoon entered the small village of Milai, Lai, which is located on the South China Sea in Vietnam. And over a four-hour period, Kali and his men murdered, we're not really sure, but between 350, maybe as many as 500, unresisting and unarmed Vietnamese civilians, old men, women, children. And this became known as the Milly Massacre or the Milly War Crime. And if you know your history, uh, ultimately uh, Rusty Calley was court-martialed for murder, found guilty at Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, and he was the only uh, person to be convicted for the war crime. But the war crime itself had a huge impact on the army and on the JAG Corps because an official investigation done by Lieutenant General uh, Ray Pierce, in determining culpability responsibility for Milai criticized the JAG Corps for having failed to properly train, educate soldiers uh, on their rights and responsibilities under the law of war. And as you might imagine, the JAG Corps had been doing classes in BASIC and AIT about your rights and responsibilities under the law of war. But obviously, this hadn't been enough because of what had happened at Milai. And so, to prevent another war crime on the scale of Milai, the JAG Corps at the highest levels, and this was in the days of. Uh, Major General George Pru, who was the Judge Advocate General. Uh, General Pru, along with a very prominent uh, international lawyer by the name of Wally Solf, decided that the Army should go to the Defense Department and ask that the Defense Department create a law of war program. And that's what happened. And in 1974, the Defense Department created a law of war program with the army as the executive agent, in other words, in charge. And this law of war program, among other things, required for the first time that judge advocates review existing operational plans, operations plans, op plans, to see if they complied with the law of armed conflict. So this by itself was a huge change because Prior to this time, lawyers weren't involved in reviewing the legality of military operations. So for example, would President Truman have gone to a lawyer in 1945 and said, do we need to do a legal review of my decision to drop the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima? The answer would have been, well, no. Why do I need a lawyer to be involved in this? Uh, So this was a big change. So lawyers began then in 1974 to review existing operations plans. And then the real wake-up call was Grenada, Operation Urgent Fury, 1983. And that was when, if you remember your history, uh, the 82nd Airborne Division and a amphibious uh, unit of Marines were going to go to Grenada, and this was to liberate, free the island of a Marxist uh, dictatorship that was there. President Reagan authorized the operation, um, but the lawyer, the staff judge advocate at the 82nd Airborne Division, Lieutenant Colonel Quentin Richardson, he had been cut out of all the operational planning because lawyers were not involved. But the night before. Richardson found out that the 82nd was deploying the following day. And he went to the chief of staff of the division and he said, I know that I'm not supposed to know, but I do know that the division's going the next day, and I think you need to take a lawyer with you. And my recollection in talking about this with Colonel uh, Richardson is that there was some back and forth And the chief of staff said, why do I need to take a lawyer? And you need to remember that in in 1983, the Army had not deployed anywhere for 10 years because we'd left Vietnam in 1973. Uh, It was a Cold War era, uh, but the Army hadn't gone anywhere. And so you had a chief of staff of the division who obviously is thinking about his experiences in Vietnam and and saying to Colonel Richardson, well, I didn't need to have a lawyer with me in Vietnam. Why do I need one now? And Richardson was very smart. He said to the chief of staff, well, look, when you get to Grenada, if you do have legal problems and I'm not there, you're not going to have good commo. Remember, this is in the days before cell phones. There are no, no computers, no web. So... You had to find a landline then to be able to call back to Fort Bragg. And Richardson said, look, boss, I don't think you know, and I don't know what legal issues might come up. But if you do need to talk to a lawyer, it's going to be very difficult to reach me, given the communication and the technology at the time. But I think Richardson also said uh, quite correctly we haven't deployed for 10 years we've never done an operation like this we don't know what you're going to find there what legal issues you're going to have and so i think you should take me with you and the bottom line was that colonel richardson went in the assault command post in the assault cp
0: what did the uh what did the structure of the legal office look like at that time so right now a a bct might have a a brigade judge advocate an operational law attorney and and maybe um some form of military justice attorney that are going to go with them. Was national security law, for lack of a better term, just a practiced area that Colonel Richardson was aware of, or did he have uh, attorneys subordinate to him that were practicing that?
1: No, there is no such thing as operational law or national security law being practiced formally, at least, in a division. And there's no such thing as a BCT judge advocate. Obviously, the eighty-second Airborne Division has three brigades. There was certainly on the M T O and E of each brigade, a trial council. And this the ordinary practice of the era, so this is the early nineteen eighties, uh, thirty-five years ago, the ordinary practice would be a judge advocate is assigned as the trial counsel for each brigade, and the judge advocate then tries the courts martial coming out of that brigade but does that trial counsel have a habitual relationship with the brigade commander yes but only in terms probably of military justice and some administrative law so there's no involvement in training exercises that the brigade might be doing there's no operational law attorney but I think Richardson You know, I'm going to talk about the development of operational law. It's really more accurate to say that there were always some lawyers in the JAG Corps who were practicing operational law, but it was an individual thing. It was an ad hoc thing. Uh, There wasn't any formal recognition in the JAG Corps as an institution that there was such a thing as operational law.
0: Did the situation with uh richardson's colonel richardson's experiences changed that formally in any way going forward
1: well i think it's the wake-up call mm-hmm. because when richardson got on the get ground in grenada there were all sorts of legal issues that no one had anticipated um for example the marxist government on grenada had been closely allied with castro's cuba and there were cubans on the island military and civilian personnel who were advising the grenadian people's army and so immediately the question was well what's the status of these cuban nationals who were beginning to detain are they prisoners of war well the answer was no they're not prisoners of war because we're not at war with cuba um Well, what legal status do they have? Well, Richardson's decision was to say, we will give everyone who is detained by American forces, we'll treat them as if they were prisoners of war, are prisoners of war, and we'll figure out their actual legal status later. So fast forward to today, that's still our, you know, we tell the line doggy soldier on the ground, you don't need to worry about whether or not this person is legally a prisoner of war. Treat everyone who you detain as if they were prisoners of war. Um, That was one issue. The other issue was that the uh, 82nd Airborne Division is pretty uh, thin when it comes to logistical support. I mean, once paratroopers are on the ground, maybe they have a day or two worth of rations. But after that, somebody had to buy food and somebody had to buy uh, potable water so all of a sudden there's some legal issues here who's going to do this contracting Uh, and then there were fiscal law issues there were a number of americans on the island of grenada who were attending uh, medical school there Uh, there and they wanted to come home they wanted to go home well could those american civilians get on military aircraft and be flown home. Well, the general rule is, no, you, you can't have civilian personnel without any status on the military aircraft. So there were all sorts of legal issues that came up, administrative law, fiscal law, contract law, and the JAG Corps suddenly realized, I believe, that if the Corps and if judge advocates were going to be relevant in the Army they had to be involved in military operations at not just a strategic level, but actually at an operational and a tactical level. And if we were going to have a future in the army, we had to be with commanders when they deployed. So I think Grenada then is the wake up call and the beginning of a recognition by a number of judge advocates that we needed to be prepared to deploy with commanders when they when they went so that's 1983 by the time you get to panama 1989 you have lieutenant colonel jim smith the staff judge advocate at the 82nd airborne division actually participating in the combat jump into panama if you'd suggested that this, uh, that a staff judge advocate should have jumped into Normandy in in World War II with the 101st, you would have, people would have thought you were crazy. And then by the time just a year or so later, and you get to Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, then I think you see judge advocates really now are integrated into combat operations. And today, every BCT has three Judge Advocates when it deploys, uh, seven paralegals, and I think this is finally a recognition that the JAG Corps is part and parcel of combat operations, military operations.
0: What did this transformation look like uh, going into the early 90s with Desert Shield, Desert Storm?
1: Well, you certainly have uh, a number of Judge advocates, uh, for example, uh, Colonel Walter uh, Huffman, who's the staff judge advocate uh, at, uh, I guess it's CENTCOM. And then you have uh, Colonel Ray Rupert, who's the staff judge advocate. Um, I guess it, uh, he was be with Schwarzkopf. And then you had uh, John Altenburg, for example. Lieutenant Colonel John Altenburg is at the uh, Armored Division, 3rd Armored Division, 1st Armored Division. I'd have to look this up. Um, but they are certainly attuned to the fact that we've got to be there with commanders providing legal advice. There's a, a great story. I guess Huffman, uh, Colonel Huffman, is at 7th Corps. That's where he is and uh, Ray Rupert is at uh, CENTCOM. But there's a great story of, of uh, they're in the middle of the fight with the uh, Iraqis after the ground war has started, and uh, General Huffman, then Colonel Huffman is asked, we're using bulldozers to clear Iraqis, and the bulldozers are planning to simply fill in the trenches that Iraqi soldiers are in, is this a violation of the law of war to bury these enemy soldiers alive? So Huffman has actually asked this question as the operation is ongoing. And he says, no, there's no law of war violation or any problem with using a bulldozer to defeat the enemy in this fashion. So again, commanders are already beginning to look to their judge advocates for on the spot, real time legal advice. and. And you're beginning to see judge advocates actually in the talks, the tactical operations centers, uh, advising on targeting. Today, that's just a matter of routine. So if you go back and you look at, at Desert Shield, Desert Storm, it was a metamorphosis in the role of judge advocates in military operations. But I think also it took quite a while for commanders to recognize and appreciate what judge advocates could do in military operations, uh, providing legal advice not only on issues involving targeting or detainees, but I think commanders also have more and more looked to judge advocates as the honest brokers, uh, Judge advocates are not competing with commanders. They're not trying to be a company commander, a battalion commander, a brigade commander. And they're also, as special staff officers, not competing with the other staff officers. So I think many times senior Army officers, division commanders, Corps commanders, look at their judge advocates and say, Well, if I need a sounding board, or I need an honest broker, or someone who uh, I can share ideas with or bounce solutions off of, I look to my judge advocate. And I always say, as lawyers, what do we really learn? We learn how to spot problems and offer solutions. That's what you learn in law school, right? It's all issue. The first year is all issue spotting. So... Our real strength in the Army is to be able to spot issues, spot problems, and then provide common sense solutions that may be legal but may be policy. We make a, a very, very hard, we work very hard to distinguish between the two. And we say, look, boss, this is the legal solution, but is this going to look good on the front page of the New York Times? Uh, Is there a policy consideration here? So the development of operational law has come full bloom, and I know we have a sophisticated definition for operational law, but my feeling has always been it's nothing more than what can I do as a judge advocate to help a commander achieve
0: mission success. Would you think it's fair to say that, immediately after 911 that the this transformation was complete and and it's kind of similar to what we have now with the the National Security Attorneys going forward with their commanders or was there much of a change from 911 until until now
1: No, I don't I don't think so. I think that that your observation is correct. I mean, by the time we get to September 11th, 2001, um The Army is comfortable with the role of judge advocates in military operations, and I think the JAG Corps is as well. A lot of this is there There are many people who who deserve credit for this, but certainly uh, retired uh, Colonel Dave Graham, uh, one of the early proponents of operational law, and then you have others like uh, Colonel retired Mark Warren, also someone who was a firm believer in operational law. Uh, Mark Martins, Brigadier General Mark Martins, another early pioneer, particularly in the area of rules of engagement. Uh, General Martins' article published in the Military Law Review many years ago now on on rules of engagement is still something that judge advocates look to. So I think operational laws is here to stay and then I'm a big believer as a historian in the law of unintended consequences. So here you have Me Lai and the JAG Corps' goal in creating the, or telling the Defense Department that we need to have a DOD law of war program. The goal is to prevent another Me Lai. Well, we have. There's never been another war crime on the same scale as Me Lai. So we've accomplished that goal. But the law of unintended consequences was the integration of judge advocates into military operations at all levels. And so to go back to your original question about what judge advocates did in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, which was all about courts martial, since military justice as our bread and butter has really declined markedly where we're doing fewer than 500 cases a year, it's really great that we are now more focused on operational law. And operational law, I think, is our bread and butter now, our reason for being, our raison d'etre. In the past, it was courts martial. now it's operational law. And that's a good thing because courts martial have disappeared in the numbers that they once existed.
0: All right, Mr. Bork, uh, thank you very much for um, being on the podcast today. I think that's a good stopping point for now. But before we go, I know we had discussed um, some book recommendations from you. I know we always like to ask our guests uh, maybe what they're reading or, <clears throat> or some books that have, that have been impactful or that the, the listeners might appreciate that might supplement um, the lifelong learning reading list. And just wanted to get your thoughts on, on some recommendations.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you three books here. The first one is a military book, military history book. I am a military historian so so I'll start there. And it's called Implacable Foes, Implacable Foes, and it's by Waldo Heinrichs and Mark Galicchio. And it's about the war in the Pacific before in 1944-1945. The reason that I really like this book is that it focuses on the time between the surrender of the Germans in Europe and the end of the war in the Pacific, and the focus of the book is how the United States planned to defeat Japan without an atomic bomb. Because until the bombs were actually dropped, no one knew in the Army, really, except for those involved in the Manhattan Project, that there was such a weapon. In fact, if your listeners know their history, they know that, Pre- that Vice President Truman didn't know anything about the atomic bomb until Roosevelt died and Truman was sworn in as president because the bomb was so super secret. So the army was planning, planning, planning in 44 and 45, how it was going to defeat Japan. And this book is really remarkable because it talks, for example, about how the logistical challenge, for example, of getting ready to defeat Japan required moving material of the same size and volume of the city of Philadelphia. And how are you going to do this? So that's a really, really interesting book. Um, Starting with some fundamental questions like, why do we have to have an unconditional surrender of Japan? Why can't we have a negotiated peace? Uh, We won the war in Europe. Do we really have to fight another vicious war in the Pacific? So I really recommend that, Implacable Foes. Then um, another nonfiction book that I was going to recommend. It's an old book, but it's well worth reading, and it's called American Slavery, American Freedom by Edward Morgan. If you want to understand America today, if you want to understand race relations, the struggle for Racial Justice. This is a great book to start with because it explains how we fell into slavery in Virginia in the 1600s. And it talks about the dichotomy of our founding fathers who talked about freedom and equality, and yet we're all slaveholders. This is a great book. Uh, Edward Morgan, American slavery, American freedom, and after all, you're you're talking about Virginians who drafted the Declaration of Independence, were mostly involved in drafting the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, um, and yet these men owned slaves. So this dichotomy between enslaved peoples and these. Fabulous individuals who created the republic in which we live today. So this is a great book. Uh, And then the last thing is, I'm going to give you a fiction book. I'm a big fan of uh, science fiction and fantasy. And I recommend that you read Lev Grossman's fantasy trilogy, The Magicians. Uh, It's about young adults practicing magic in the real world there's violence there's sex there's rough language so this is not c.s lewis's narnia or harry potter um but it's it's a great fiction escapist fantasy for adults to read
0: all right thank you very much mr Bork. we really appreciate your time you're welcome and we'll uh, try to have you on again uh in the future thank you
1: you're very welcome
0: And that's it for this episode of the podcast. For more information related to FCD, you can follow us on Twitter at JAGFCD or by visiting our webpage. Finally, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to Battlefield Next on your favorite podcast app. While this is a podcast created by U.S. Army Judge Advocates from the Future Concepts Directorate, our goal is to reach other judge advocates and lawyers across the DOD, law students, and members of academia. Your reviews help make this possible. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on Battlefield Next.